Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the 12th episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, Pope Alexander VI. Mm. I feel like there should be a dum-dum-dum afterwards. (laughs) Right. So, parochial announcements. The only thing we were going to ask was, please give us a review. Yes. On iTunes or whatever, because... Apparently, it's meant to be good for podcasts to get reviews. I'm not quite sure how how all this works. It has something to do with an algorithm. If you get good reviews, then it bumps you up in the search function. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you've listened to it this far, you you must like it a bit. Yes, please. So, if you could give us a review, that would be very nice. Yes, please. All right. Right. That's it. And now the quiz. Right, okay. And it's um, Edmund Dudley. Edmund Dudley. Dudley. Lovely Mr. Dudley. <laughs> I really, I, I, I don't say I really enjoyed it. I found it fascinating because it was so different <laughs> from anybody we've had before. And it seemed so scarily modern. It, it did, but it was also mm. very depressing. But not in a good way. <laughs> no. Mm. <laughs> I was hesitant to release this one, but I think it'll be okay. We've, it'll balance out the extra happy one of, we really did go from one to the other. Pointings was this happy, let's do it, let's go, to, uh. Well, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Borgia, the, um, the Pope's quite jolly in a funny sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> I've written it quite jolly anyway, although I, it probably wasn't if you were there. But... <laughs> okay, quiz time, yes, I suppose. quiz. Quiz. Okay, question one. Mm-hmm. What is the Latin name for the procedure followed by the Crown to challenge private jurisdictions? Yeah, I started to tell Rob about that today and I couldn't remember the damn name. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I was, ended up saying, you know, it's some sort of Latin. Um, I can't remember. Quo, Quo Warranto. Warranto. That was it. I remember the quo bit, so I should get half a point. Okay. Half a point. (laughs) (laughs) Number two. In what county was Dudley the Knight of the Shire, the Justice of the Peace, the Tax Assessor, and the Tax Collector? Sussex. Yes, correct. (laughs) Poor Sussex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's bounced back since. (laughs) It's quite quite a wealthy wealthy county these days. Okay. (laughs) Number three, what is the name of the book that Edmund wrote that is still being read today? Oh, God. Uh, This is making me feel so much better for my last. (laughs) (laughs) But you had a really long time between between recordings. I've had a really short time (laughs) and I can't think what is. I can't remember. The Tree of Commonwealth. The Tree of Commonwealth. I was thinking of the Lamps of Something, but I've just been reading about a, a medieval book called The Lamps of Something. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Something medical. Okay. Oh, my God. Ooh, I can't even it. imagine what's in it. <laughs> All the humours that make no sense whatsoever. No, but hung on for many, many, many centuries. Okay, number four. Right, I'm doing really well so far. Yeah. <laughs> How many years did Edmund work for the king and amass his wealth? It was either four years or six years. Six years. Six years. 
<laughs> well done. You've got two and a half. <laughs> what controversial trade was Dudley in charge of? Alum. Yes. <laughs> How many times we've talked about it, you'd have to get that one. Nice. So three and a half out of five. That's not too bad. It's not as bad as I did last time. <laughs> Yeah, but we only recorded this yesterday. <laughs> hey, don't don't open the curtain to the background. <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. make a start. And now, on with the show. Alexander. Now, I've got a few preconceptions of this person. Right, okay. Possibly because there have been shows for this person. <laughs> And they're horrific. Right, I've not seen any of them. I've not seen the Borges or oh, it, it, anything you, else involved. Uh, they have one scene where they executed some people by sawing them in half. And I was like, I'm done. Yeah, not for me. Thanks. <laughs> I didn't watch the rest of I didn't of come the across show. that. didn't come across that in any of the books I read. So uh, um, whether that was a bit of uh, artistic license. Possibly. I hope so. I hope nobody did that to somebody. But I don't doubt that that would have happened. <laughs> Honestly, they had some really gruesome things that they did to people. Well, we'll come to all of that. But uh, yeah, no, I certainly didn't come across any soaring in half. But come with me, if you will, to a dinner party. It's been thrown by a cardinal by the name of Castellesi, who was in Rome trying to obtain a papal dispensation for a marriage between a young Spanish princess and her English brother-in-law. Now, this is quite an upmarket dinner party, as Castellesi has invited none other than the Pope, Alexander VI. Castellesi has a good feeling about tonight. He's broached the subject of the dispensation, and Alexander seems quite amenable to the idea. In fact, Castellesi is feeling pretty elated. It's as good as in the bag, he thinks. He can't wait to go back to England and tell Henry VII the good news. But at that moment, Pope Alexander goes purple in the face. And clutching his stomach, he lets out a groan. <laughs> First of all, let me ask you a question. What do you think makes a good Pope? I'm not entirely sure, because I would think of what would make a good Pope now, but it wouldn't be the yeah. same as what would have been a good Pope during the Tudor era. Well, what would be a, a generic I mean, what would you expect from a... Well, first I'd expect them to actually be pious and believe in God and mm. follow the church doctrines. Right. I'm pretty sure none of the Borgias did, though. <laughs> no. But you would think, no, somebody kind. You always hope somebody, the Pope is a kind person that actually mm. loves people. Hmm. No, yeah, I think um, Alexander took an altogether different view of good popage. <laughs> In fact, Behold the strumpet of proud Babylon, her cup with fornication foaming, full of God's high wrath and vengeance for that evil which was imposed upon her by the devil. And that was the introduction of the Barnabas Barnes play, The Devil's Charter of 1607. Is that about Alexander the Sixth? It's all about Alexander's oh. papacy. <laughs> So you can see what sort of Pope he was at least alleged to be, a good old-fashioned Renaissance Pope. <laughs> Contemporaries noted that Rodrigo Borgia, who was to become Alexander VI, 
had become pontiff purely through his relationship with the devil. Indeed, Girolam Priuli, the doge of Venice, said in 1559, Borgia could not die since he had given his soul and body to the great devil of hell. <sighs> Although he could, and indeed he had, in 1503. Died, I mean, not given his soul to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and people really believe that the only way Alexander could have become Pope was that he'd sold his soul to the devil. Well, wow. <laughs> we haven't had this. We've come across people who've done dubious things to get to the top, but we've never had a pact with the devil. No, not yet. <laughs> Although Dud Dudley probably was pretty close. But So why did so many people believe this? Well, their reasons were not always very worthy. Alexander, or Rodrigo de Boja, as he was then, was born in Valencia and they were Catalans, and many Catalans were accused, and that is the right word for the attitudes of the time, accused of sheltering Jews that had been expelled from Spain. Oh, that doesn't seem mean, though. Not now it doesn't. No, it sounds like a nice thing. I wonder if he knew John Cabot. Mm -mm. He was thought to have been brought up among Jews and Moors, and therefore could not have been a proper Christian. And Martin Luther called him a baptised Jew. Wow. So I'm saying... Yeah, and saying that the people who criticised him were no saints themselves. But then Luther did think that the papacy as a whole had been founded by Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. Sorry, I almost spat out my tea laughing. <laughs> oh my God. But just being Spanish was bad enough because Julius II, the Pope following Alexander, his denunciation of Alexander after the latter's death built very heavy, heavily on the fact that he was ugh, a Spaniard. <laughs> <laughs> so another reason that doesn't make Alexander's detractors look great is they thought that he was in league with the devil because it seems he may have been epileptic. Right. And they thought that was demon possession. So wait, the Pope was epileptic? Apparently so. I mean, I, that was the only recording I found of it. Oh. Somebody said that he was in league with the devil because he had epileptic fits. Okay. However, Alexander gave people plenty of other reasons to criticise him. The main accusations thrown at him were those of simony, which we talked about with uh, yes. Mr. Dudley, <laughs> avarice and nepotism, and he was definitely guilty of all three. Simony, as we said, was selling of church offices, which he did with wild abandon. <laughs> And incidentally, the word nepotism from the Latin nepos, meaning nephew, came from the papal habit of giving preferment to the sons of their family, since obviously they wouldn't have sons of their own. Right. Not our Alexander. He had at least six children, some of whom went on to become immensely wealthy and famous, even up to today, especially Cesare Borgia and Lucretia Borgia. Oh, yes. Everybody <laughs> knows Lucretia. I think she's got to be the most famous person out of that family, actually. I think so, and yet I felt yes, it wasn't it wasn't deserved. No, from the books I've read, I've got actually two books downstairs on her, and it, you feel sorry for her by the end. Oh, of it. I did feel sorry for her. Yes, I really did. I will come to the the children towards the end. However, Alexander was not the only pope to have children. It was quite common. What made Alexander different was that he acknowledged them as his own, and he reveled in them and worked hard to promote them. At least that's the commonly held view. But the author G.J. Mayer had another theory. He argued that the birth dates of the four children Alexander had by his long-term and very accommodating mistress, Vanozza, when measured against Alexander's known whereabouts, actually precludes him from having fathered any of them. 
and that his acknowledgement of them merely consisted of addressing them as beloved son or daughter in correspondence. And Mayer points out that he uses the same address to Ferdinand and Isabella. And he definitely wasn't their, their father. Hmm. I don't think so. I've assumed he meant, you know, the usual term that Catholic priests use, me and my son. Yes. When you talk to people. Personally, I think it's unlikely. He wouldn't have invested all the time, money and heartache in them if they hadn't been his own kids. Right. And he does. I, he certainly does. And also, Stefano Infessura, a histor historian who was around the court at this time, said rather cryptically of the Borgia household, I love this quote, I could tell you many other things, but I will not recount them, because some are not true. And those that are, are anyway unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> so the true ones are more unbelievable than the ones which are false. Wow. Alexander's bad press. Yeah, I've noticed we have become quite revisionist ourselves in our coverage of the people we've met so far in this podcast, because you were sure that Margaret Beaufort was going to be holy and dull. Yes. She turned out to be a drunk with a gambling problem. Yep. <laughs> we, we both ended up with very different views of Jasper, neither of which was the one I started with. Edward Plantagenet may not even have been Edward Plantagenet. And Edward Poynings, whom I thought was going to be a monster, turned out somewhere between a saint and a teddy bear. <laughs> and Alex Alexander may be another one in this mould. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, possibly. Julius II was probably one of the reasons that Alexander gets such a bad press. See, he was the Tudors to Alexander's Rich III in terms of propaganda. Right. He came afterwards and you know, dished the dirt. Well, didn't dish, dish the dirt. He made up the dirt, <laughs> some of it. Following his death, Alexander's servants were threatened with violence or just tortured by Julius's men until they came up with salacious gossip about Alexander. Oh, my God. Okay, wait. So the new pope is torturing the previous pope's servants? Yes. What? We will do, Julius. Oh, that is a well, horrible... What kind of pope thinks torture is okay? A renaissance pope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's so wrong. That is not what I would expect in a pope. Please, current pope, whichever one you are when you're listening, please do not torture people. <laughs> that that should just be an automatic thing with the pope. You take a vow to never torture somebody. <laughs> what the yeah, heck? Yeah, you shouldn't. You shouldn't need to take that vow, should you? <laughs> no. The story is that he dosed his enemies with a mysterious concoction called cantarella, probably an arsenic solution comes from this source and so should be taken with a pinch or two of salt. Okay. And much of what we hear about Alexander was more likely to have been Cesare, who really was a naughty boy. Yeah, I've also read about him and actually yeah. put the last book away because I ran out of any patience. <laughs> it was so disturbing. Yeah, I got the impression he was sort of the Italian George Duke of Clarence. <laughs> yeah, but some things are definitely true. He definitely had several mistresses. He definitely stroke pro probably had several children. And he also frequented prostitutes. But again, Alexander was not alone in that. It was an extremely decadent age. Prostitution as a class flourished. The term courtesan was introduced for the more upmarket prostitutes, and they figured so prominently in society that Pope Sixtus had taxed them. <laughs> but I mean, sadly, this does indicate that there's little else for a, that a woman could do if she were widowed or short of money. Yes, that is true. Yeah. And it wasn't just in Italy that such things were tolerated. Back in England, the owner of the biggest brothel in London was the Bishop of Winchester, and he gave discounts to the clergy. <laughs> so I presume he would justify this, this by a quote I came across by St. Augustine. 
which was, if society were to do away with prostitutes, the world would be convulsed with surplus lust. And he was the one who said, Lord, make me good, but not yet, wasn't he, St. Augustine? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But Alexander wasn't just flouncing around the Vatican being all decadent. His aims as Pope were to reconstruct and extend the Pope's authority in the Papal States, to put down the condottieri, the mercenary adventurers and their armies that were causing havoc around the Italian peninsula, and to resume direct control over the vicariates. See, do you remember in the Diet, going back a bit, Diocletian episode of Totalis Rancium, the emperor divided the territory into dioceses ruled by vicars? Yes. Yeah, and the name's still here. You get the vicariates. These were not new aims, and Julius II carried them on after Alexander's death, but he does seem to have made some impressive inroads into them, so he wasn't he wasn't just decadent. I'm going to tell everybody I am sorry. You will be hearing planes today. It's quite windy here, and the planes are flying mm-hmm. quite low, and I cannot get rid of the sound, and they seem to be quite active. I'll do my best to take them out before I send you the edited portion of my recording. All right. I don't think it matters. I mean, quite a few of the ones we've done before, I've had tractors going past and there wasn't (laughs) anything I could do about that either. Right, Rome and the Popes, up to Alexander. To set the scene, what led up to Alexander's papacy? When in the first half of the 15th century, Rome had seen better days. Visitors complained of moss-covered statues, graffitied tombs. There were woods inside the city walls that were inhabited by forest animals. There was rotting rubbish everywhere, derelict churches and palaces, and you couldn't go out at night because of armed gangs and wolves. Oh, I see. When you st- when you said woods inside the city walls, I was thinking, oh, they have a little park, but that's not what you no, meant. No, no, I think it's just been taken over. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think parts of it have been abandoned, and yeah, just nature's taken over. Okay. If there was a holy procession, men with dogs and falcons had to go ahead and clear the route of vermin. Ew. It's no wonder that the popes decided to pack their bags and move to France. Pope Nicholas V decided that enough was enough and used some of the money he got from the hordes of pilgrims that arrived in Rome in 1450, which he proclaimed to be a holy year, to rebuild Rome. He moved into the Vatican Palace and invited artists, sculptors and gold and silversmiths to come in and titivate the city. But after Nicholas's death, the next pope took the name of Calixtus III, and he was Bishop of Valencia and, which is more useful to the purposes of this podcast, his name was Alfonso de Boja. So he was Rodrigo's uncle. Oh, okay. So he was not very popular with the Romans because he was Spanish. Oh, again. Calixtus was an old man and he suffered from gout. <laughs> he didn't. And so everyone thought he'd be a quiet, unassuming stopgap until they found someone better. Someone less Spanish. <laughs> But no, he announced it was crusade time and he abandoned all Nicholas's building plans to pay for it. He only lasted three years in office, but they were three very useful years for our man Rodrigo Borgia. A quick rundown, Rodrigo became Cardinal Deacon of San Nicola in Carcere. This was after Calixtus had specially created an extra opening for a cardinal in the college. Oh, so he created a job for his nephew. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's what they did. He became Bishop of Valencia, Vice-Chancellor of the Holy Roman Church, which was very lucrative. And he kept that job for 35 years and only only packed it in once he became Pope. And he had a temporary role as Captain General of the Papal Army. So it is definitely handy having an uncle as Pope. Yes. Yeah, nepotism in the strict sense of the word. 
Roger was too young to run for Pope when his uncle died, although you would bet he'd have gone for it if he could. The next Pope took the name of Pius II, Bishop of Siena, so hooray, an Italian. Was he actually pious, though? He's P-I-U-S, not P-I-O-U-S, maybe, oh. so perhaps that, <laughs> perhaps that O makes a world of difference. <laughs> he, too, was more interested in slaughtering Turks and rebuilding Rome. Borgia did pretty well out of this Pope, too, since it was his change of vote that helped him get the papacy. Hmm. The next Pope was another was a friend of Borgia, Pope Paul II, who died in 1471. And Borgia was now old enough to go for Pope, but there were only three non-Italians in the conclave, so they were ex- extremely unlikely to vote in another Spaniard. Right. They freely got it in for the Spaniards. Yes, they really do. Yeah. I think it's just foreigners in general. I'm not sure it's Spaniards in particular. And that seems to definitely be an English thing at that time. So yeah. So I guess I think it's, it's common in every country, maybe? Perhaps. I should imagine so. So next Pope, Sixtus IV. Again, Borgia had helped Sixtus to get the job and could reap the benefits. Sixtus was known by some as a new Augustus, who found Rome built of brick and left it built of marble. He rebuilt hundreds of churches, paved and widened the streets, brought fresh water to the city again, and built a certain chapel that bears his name to this day, although its ceiling wasn't painted until Julius II was Pope. So we always assume that patronage of the art is a good thing, but not necessarily so. It wasn't universally praised. The religious firebrand Savonarola criticised Rome for its concern for luxury. We may be pleased that these people gave their patronage to artists now, since we can enjoy it, but Mm -hmm. many saw it as a complete waste of money. Aww. I like that. (laughs) No, not that it was a waste of money, but the art. I like the art. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pericles had the same thing when he was trying to build the Parthenon and people kept saying, no, stop it, you're just spending too much money. Yeah. But it's been quite popular since, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yes, during the reign of Sixtus, Borgia was made legate to Spain and negotiated a treaty between Aragon and Castile. The Pope gave Borgia discretion as to whether to allow the marriage between Ferdinand and Isabella, as they were first cousins. Really? Luckily for the future of English history... Borgia said yes. Yes. He very often did say yes. So the King and Queen of Spain had every reason to be grateful to him, and they made him godfather of their first son. And you get the impression that the term godfather was quite apt for Rodrigo (laughs) Borgia. (laughs) Muffy or (laughs) so. Yeah, Yeah. that was the line that horrible history took anyway. (laughs) And Borgia then helped the next Pope, Innocent VIII, to get to the job. So you can see he's got through a lot of Popes. So more perks for Rodrigo. Under Innocent, Rome relapsed back into the pre-Nicholas days with armed gangs roaming the streets. So the upshot of all this manoeuvring was that Borgia was a very rich and influential man. And he also has four children at this time, to add to the two he's already had. So celibacy is obviously just a mission statement for him. <laughs> and when Innocent VIII died, Borgia was 61. So it was now or never if he wanted that papacy. And rather touchingly, when he was made pontiff, having bribed virtually everyone in the conclave, he appeared at the window wearing the largest of the three sizes of papal robes. There's an interesting side note, because they didn't know who was going to be made Pope. So they made three lots of papal robes, you know, small, medium and large. Yes. <laughs> so they were ready. That we- Pontifax mentions that, and I think it might have been in one of their background episodes, hmm. about the fact that it was just sort of a generic Pope costume basically yes a big baggy one (laughs) anyway when he was at the window looking down at the expectant multitude of rome 
he's meant to stand there demurely and say, Vollo, I wish it. Instead, he kept shouting, I'm the Pope! I'm the Pope! <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> and he got so excited during his coronation festival that he fainted. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he felt he's like a little boy, really, yeah. <laughs> running about, shouting, I'm the Pope! <laughs> so why was Alexander chosen? Well, money, as we've seen. And, of course, he had made that pact with the devil. But there is a bit more to it than that. He was chosen because of a deadlock in the voting between rival groups supporting other candidates, which had repercussions for external politics, which extended out across Europe, even, in case you're wondering if there, whether we'll ever mention the place, to England. So, these two other popes. In the red corner, you have Cardinal Ascanio. And he's the brother of Ludovico Sforza of Milan, Oh, I've heard that name before. Yeah, well, you'll hear it a lot in this episode. Okay. He had the patronage of Charles VIII of France, who was looking for a new pope who would be hostile to the king of Naples, Aragonese. Right, and it's important to understand that because that is the basis of the entire episode, really. So you've got uh, Cardinal Oscanio, and he is under the patronage of Charles VIII, and Charles VIII is trying to make Naples French and not Aragonese. Okay, and what... What year is this right now? I'm just wondering if this is before Henry VII has taken the crown. No, after. After, okay. Yeah. It was important to get a sympathetic pope on board because yeah, Naples was a papal fief, so the pope would only agree to crown a ruler if he agreed with his politics. Okay. And in the blue corner, you have Cardinal della Rovere, later Julius II. And he was promoted by the Neapolitan king, Alfonso II, at least he was, initially. So you have the Aragonese on one side of his battles for Naples, and the battle for the papacy, and the French on the other side. You would think, at this, I'm just thinking, if we're relating it to England at this time, France was doing what they could to get rid of Henry, so I would assume Henry, if he had to take a stance, would be on the Aragonese side. Henry plays the field a bit. Okay. <laughs> As we will find out. This may sound like a minor skirmish, but you know this is this is big, and lasts a long time. So Alexander, during the papal election, managed to remain separate from those two factions, and so was able to secure the votes of those who didn't want to be drawn into international politics. And as we said, there was money—lots and lots and lots of money. He did a lot of bribing. <laughs> See, the Italian wars would be a doddle to understand if people would only take a side and stick to it, but they don't. Ludovica Sforza of Milan started by calling in the French to help him, and then he turned against them when he realised that you know the French were going for, for Naples, but then they'd be heading for Milan. Okay. <laughs> and Cardinal della Rovere, that's Julius, started siding with Alfonso II, the Neapolitan one, until he decided that his hatred for Alexander exceeded any other consideration. <laughs> you know, my enemy's <laughs> friend is my enemy. So he turned to the French, big time. Cesare Borgia started on the Spanish side and then went over to fight for the French. So it is difficult keeping tabs on whose side people are on no at kidding. any one time. Right, even those who criticised Alexander's lifestyle, that he was guilty of simony and bribery, and he couldn't keep his manhood inside his cassock, they all... <laughs> well, this is what you said. They all conceded that he was a very competent pope. 
which does seem crazy to me. I mean, maybe you can get away with this as a cabinet minister or CEO of a big company, but surely you can't say that apart from all the sinning, he was a good pope. (laughs) (laughs) But according to Roger Gill of Birmingham City University, who was kind enough to give me some advice about Alexander, thank you very much, his greatest fault was perhaps to love his children too much. And maybe it could be said of them that the sins of the children were visited on the father. Yeah, I imagine Alexander like those awful pushy parents you find at Hamleys or Macy's just before Christmas, you know, elbowing each other in the face. Oh, jeez. Get the must-have toy for their little ones. Because loving your children is natural and commendable, but Alexander was incapable of saying no to them, especially Cesare. And much of his political thinking was swayed by Cesare. He admitted Cesare to the Sacred College when he was only 18, and he wasn't even in holy orders oh my goodness. at that point. Yeah, so you can imagine how well that went down. So to counteract any complaints, Alexander said that he'd show them who was Pope, and that at Christmas he'd make more cardinals whether they liked it or not. Close quotes. <laughs> He's like a child. He is. He really is. <laughs> and he made the, um, an unprecedented 13 new cardinals all answerable to him. By the time Cesare was 21, he was the most powerful cardinal in Rome. But he wasn't Daddy's favourite. Daddy's favourite was... No, Daddy's favourite was Juan. Alexander's plan was to strengthen his rule over the Papal States and make Juan prince over parts of it. And to that end, Alexander called Juan back from Spain, where he'd been sent to marry into the Spanish royal family. See, we're all pro-Spain at this point. Right. It doesn't last. (laughs) But the decision to recall his son was one that he was to regret, since Juan was soon found weighted down in the Tiber with multiple stab wounds. Right, and there was so some rumor that... So he wasn't Daddy's favorite anymore. No, <laughs> there, there, I've heard some rumors that, that went around yeah. during that time in that book on Lucretia Borgia, was that it could possibly have been Cesare? Could have been, but we planned to do a special episode on who killed Juan mm. in the new year. Okay. Look at it then, but I found... 14 possible culprits. Really? Including Cesare. Oh, so he was very well favoured. Everybody loved him. (laughs) He was an awful man. (laughs) Awful. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to find anyone weighted down in a river, but, you know, if anyone had it coming. (laughs) Wow. Okay, that's (laughs) condemning. (laughs) Well, we'll hear all about him in the new year. um, Yeah, I think Cesare's bad. Interesting. Cesare had been shunted into the church, a job for which he was wholly unsuited, you know, by dad. And Juan was given leadership roles in the army, a job for which he was wholly unsuited. But Juan's death enabled Cesare to ditch the church and take up arms, um, which is what he wanted to do in the first place. He didn't want all this cardinaling. So the death of Juan also made seemed to make Alexander rethink his life, and he started to make an attempt to reform the papacy. But this soon wore off. It doesn't sound like anything's lasting there. I keep thinking it's just chaos everywhere you turn. I'll do this. Nope, Mm. nope, change my mind. I'm going to go this way. Yeah, no, it felt very much like that. I put a little side heading here, aims of the episode, but it seems a bit late to talk about the aims of the episode. (laughs) We're nearly halfway through, but never mind. We'll leave Pontifax to do Alexander VI's salacious life in detail. And there's so much detail, I don't feel we're treading on any toes. There's just too much for one episode. And we're going to focus on a couple of parts of his papacy that have connections to England and its politics. So that's the betrothal of Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur. Mm -hmm. And the betrothal of Catherine of Aragon and Prince Henry. Yes. 
and, in a lot more detail, the Holy League. And I have to come clean here, there was not as much from the English perspective as I had thought when we chose all these people. So you may find the mention of the Tudors is a little bit sparse in this episode. Okay. But on the plus side, we can look at what was expected of the papacy and what they actually got. I think we've seen a bit of what they got. And we will examine the Italian wars, which draw in a few of our other victims and need to be understood to get a full view of the period. Anyway, that's my excuse. <laughs> Looked at from Alexander's perspective, there was a lot going on on the Italian peninsula, and Henry and England are very much footnotes in the books about Alexander and the Italian wars. So I've dredged out as much as I could. <laughs> To understand what the Pope gets up to, it's important to know what the papacy involved, because it is very different from the role of today's Pope. And in fact, the Pope had four roles. Religious, obviously. Mm -hmm. He asserted universal authority over all Christians, lay as well as clerical. And apart from those who are really on the fringes, pretty much all Christians were Catholic and therefore answerable to the Pope. Right. Martin Luther is only just starting his action. But yeah. he wasn't the first, so there is a bit of yeah. Protestantism coming, because John Wycliffe comes before then. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, we've made him one of our people, haven't we? But yes. even though he's way, way out of our times. Yes, because he did have some action on the way England's church was running, just mm. because he did put in some contested ideas. Well, secondly, the Pope was nominal head of the Papal States, although numerous local lords and barons actually governed and generally feuded amongst themselves, backed by the condottieri, the military adventurers and all their armies. And this was the swamp that Alexander was hoping to drain, to coin an overused metaphor. Hugely overused. <laughs> Thirdly, the civil government of the city was under the Pope's control. He, his, it was his job to run Rome. So you don't get that anymore. I mean, Pope Francis doesn't have to do the rubbish collection or parking tickets anymore. But at right. that time, Pope was the head of the administration of Rome. And lastly, the Pope was ruler of all kings. His granting of their powers was what made the kings legitimate. And yes. in the 15th century, this had become theoretical rather than practical. I don't think the kings saw themselves as only there on the Pope's say-so. I'm sure they felt they got there on their own Yeah, say-so. But in this latter role, the Pope would be required to decide whether to hand out papal dispensations regarding marriage between couples whose consanguinity fell within the proscribed closeness, which it often did with the royals. But did we... Oh, what is the relation? Isn't it seven removed at this... Like, is it that many? It was something ridiculous. Here, hmm. well... I thought it was four, but I'm not sure where I got that from. Yeah, so it's supposed to be seven degrees. So that would cover virtually everybody in the, the royal gene pool, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would cover a lot of people. Okay. It really would. What does seven degrees actually mean? It keeps going to six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. That's not what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so first degree is parent, child, or brother, sister. Second degree, nope, sorry. Second degree is sibling relationship. Third degree would be uncle, aunt. Then second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins. So a sixth cousin. Degree. I mean, how would you even know that they were sixth cousins? I have no idea. Hmm. How many people must be, might well be marrying six cousins all the time without any, having any knowledge of the fact? Yeah. Hmm. So, okay, so in 1215, the Church, Fourth Lateran Council declared a change from the seven prohibited degrees back to four. Ah, I knew I'd heard four somewhere. Which is still going to be third cousins. True. That was in 1215, so the century prior hmm. to this. I just thought, if you, were, if you lived in a village, you couldn't marry anybody, could you? Without getting a special dispensation? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Alexander had a reputation for being quite generous with his papal dispensations, and he made several which were pertinent to history. But were they all paid for? <laughs> well, they were paid for in a certain way. Oh. Poss possibly with money. For instance, he allowed Louis Twelfth of France to divorce his wife, the saintly but apparently ugly Jeanne of France, so he could marry Anne of Brittany, and so subsume Brittany, the last outpost of independence, into France. And apparently Louis was deeply in love with Anne, which is you know, nice and rather surprising. Yes. So Jeanne was set aside on the Pope's say-so, and by the way, and quite coincidentally, and apropos of nothing at all, Cesare was made Duke of Valence in France. Oh. Yes, so that's how some of the payments were made. A little little something for Cesare. Hmm. Okay, and I'll give you two, two Tudoriferous points. If you can tell me who Louis XII went on to marry after Anne's death. Mary Tudor. <laughs> yes. Woohoo! I got points! <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a trick question. I was like, uh... No, no. In fact, we talked about it the other day, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Alexander was also called upon when Arthur was betrothed to Catherine of Aragon. This one wasn't because of consanguinity, although given that we've discovered that there was such a large number of people in this gene pool, quite possibly also was, but it was because Arthur was too young. Oh, and it was believed yes. that too much sex when you were young could be fatal. Yes. And some thought that this was indeed what killed him. And another dispensation was needed for the betrothal of Catherine and Prince Henry. But as we saw at the beginning of the episode, the dispensation looked as if it was forthcoming from Alexandra when he died rather abruptly. And Julius II took over, and for a while it looked as if it was not going to go Henry's way. So how different history would have been if he'd said no? Yeah, a lot of things would have changed. Nobody would be interested in the Tudors. No. Well, there's no guarantee of that. So with all that, it's hard to see when Alexander had time to be debauched and make pacts with the devil. <laughs> and according to papal theory, this one, I find it being out of, the, out of the Catholic faith, I'm not part of it. It seems odd that according to papal theory, although a pope had to be elected by the necessary majority in a conclave, he was thereafter supreme in authority since he derived all his powers from Christ directly. Yes. In which we all know about, but it does seem odd that you're voted in and suddenly you get direct, direct right from God, especially when you've bribed your way in so shamelessly. It's a special phone <laughs> on his desk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the cardinals did intermittently struggle for more power from the Pope, but it entirely depended on the whim of the Pope. And this Pope pushed for the power of his family before the power of the cardinals. Okay. 
unless, of course, the cardinals in question were family. And we get a lot of information on the day-to-day -day running of the papal court from a lovely, if rather boring, man called Birchard, who was master of ceremonies to several popes, and he left us his diaries, which, uh, which are interesting read. They ignore the salacious gossip surrounding the Vatican and are mainly filled with the protocol and rituals of papal life. And he was a stickler for protocol. Oh. He reminded me... He really reminded me of C-3PO. That's what I was getting. That's the image I was getting in my mind when I was reading his diaries. Well, at least he's gold. That applies for Alexander's love of spending. So you can see if you agree with it. For instance, he records in his diary that the Pope visited the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore to look at the work going on there. And while he's there, Alexander thinks he might do a quick blessing of the people there. And Birchard is horrified. For a start, he complains, you can't do a blessing without a preceding service. And he records in his diary, I told His Holiness that such a procedure would scarcely be appropriate, <laughs> and that indeed it would be extraordinary. <laughs> I pointed out that in Lent, it's more fitting for him to wear a red hood and a purple stole than a hood that was white with a stole with rich embroidery. Isn't the Pope goes, supposed to be infallible? And the Pope overruled him, so yes, I suppose he thought he was infallible. And as Alexander's papacy went on, Birchard stopped trying to tell the Pope when he was breaking with tradition and just took to recording it bitterly in his diary. <laughs> You'll never guess what he's done now. Oh I did I did like I, the more I read him, I did like him, but he would have been unbearable. <laughs> oh, you can't do that. Another slight digression. There have been a lot of digressions in this episode, but there's an interesting one. In 1500, Alexander announced that there'd be a jubilee, a holy year, and this would bring in pilgrims, and pilgrims would bring in money, and Alexander needed the money to fund Cesare's military campaigns. So now, come with me, if you will, on Ooh. a journey around Rome in this jubilee year. But make sure you bring lots of ready cash. Nothing is free in a jubilee year. So our, itiner our itinerary could look something like this. We could visit the Santa Maria Maggiore and admire the manger that had once been Jesus' crib in Bethlehem. Oh, sure. <laughs> then we could go to the San Giovanni in Lat Laterano and marvel at the swaddling clothes that had wrapped up the baby Jesus. Then on to the table where the apostles had eaten the Last Supper. And then to St. Peter's to see the lance that pierced Christ's body on the cross. And by the way, if you couldn't make it to Rome, you could also see that lance in Paris or Nuremberg. Oh my. And we could round up the day gawping at the holy heads of St. Peter's and St. Paul's, which one pilgrim noted still have their flesh, colour and beards as if they were still alive. Ew. I had I had vision of, you know, they got a couple of actors in and told them to stick their heads through the table and put some <laughs> cloth around them. That's better than my thought, which was they just beheaded a couple of people that they thought looked like them. Well, their heads, their heads were actually stuck on silver statues, which had at one time been encrusted with jewels, but the, the jewels had been prized off and nicked some time ago. And in fact, following the theft, frescoes showing the terrible things that would happen to you if you steal were painted on the walls near, the, near these reliquaries. I've never seen that word, reliquaries mm -hmm. as a deterrent. And you can still see them, apparently, in the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran, Lateran in Rome. So I shall definitely be booking my flight when COVID's over. <laughs> right, now we get to the Italian wars. To understand what's going on and why a Holy League was thought necessary and who joined and what was in it for them, we need to have a quick run through of the Italian wars at least over Alexander's papacy. 
because they continued for a lot longer. And it's complicated, and I will try and put a timeline on the website, which will hopefully help make sense of everything, because I can't cover it all here. One thing I felt was underplayed in some of the books I read was the fear of a Turkish invasion. And that may reflect the attitudes of the day, since Isabella of Castile found it hard to drum into people that this threat was imminent and serious. And remember, it wasn't that long ago that Constantinople fell to the Turks in 1453. Yes. And she was very keen that they should present a united front in the case of a Turkish invasion. But it wasn't until the first encroachment of the Turks on the Italian peninsula and a book by a Romanian author, Georgius de Hungaria, which made people finally sit up and take notice. His memoir described the, described the fate of the people in his country, which had been taken over by the Turks. He bemoaned how he saw a public selling ground, the poor captives are brought, bound with ropes and chains as if sheep for the slaughter. And there they're examined and stripped naked. There are sons sold with his mother watching and grieving. And it goes on in this vein. George's memoir became a bestseller and was reprinted several times between 1480 and 1500. And so people couldn't really stick their heads in the sand anymore. They knew what to expect when the Turks arrived. So Italy was vulnerable. You have the Turks to the east, the French under Charles VIII sweeping down the peninsula to attack Naples, and yet another menace, syphilis. So we'll come back to the last one in a bit. And the Turkish dimension is too huge and leads us too far from England. So we'll stick with the French invasion. often forget when we look at the gorgeous renaissance paintings sculptures and architects this was a time of great upheaval uncertainty and violence as people were frightened of the turks coming and you know they had, they had the french already coming so it was yeah. a it was a grim time to be on the italian peninsula and it's important to understand that naples had been in french hands since 1435 and the death of queen joanna ii when the aragonese took control so both france and spain felt that they had an innate right to the place which is an incendiary situation. Mm -hmm. And I should mention here that Naples is not just the town as it is now. It's the Kingdom of Naples takes up the entire foot of the Italian boot right up to just south and east of Rome. Oh. So it's a, it's it, a big chunk of the country. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's worth fighting. If it had been the town, they might not have bothered, but... <laughs> I don't know the so. geography from that time very well, but yeah, for some reason I thought it'd be a lot smaller. Mm. No, I did. I was quite surprised when I saw a map. It's also important to understand that, that Italy was made up of city-states and papal states, which bickered constantly with one another. The smaller states were observed greedily by the larger states, and the larger states were vulnerable to foreign powers. So there's always a bigger fish, to quote Star Wars. And the biggest fish at this time were France and Spain. And Italy had had the luxury of bickering amongst themselves because they had no great enemies on the outside, at least until the fall of Constantinople when the Turks started looking around for their next project. And in 1454, the Peace of Lodi had been signed, which aimed to provide against future foreign intervention in Italy's quarrels. Because they had been very much, once they start bickering with each other, they say, oh, come and help us to a, a bigger power. And just drag everybody in. Yeah, and this is what's well, Lodi had given Italy 40 years of relative peace until the French invasion of 1494. 40 years. Gosh, that's such a short, yeah, but it's such a short amount of time. 
Like these poor people. But when you think the place is overrun with mercenaries and I mean, it was all it was all going to kick off sometime. Yeah. (laughs) So as the historian Andrew Pettigree says, the Italians sowed the seed of their own catastrophe. They could not resist calling in outside powers to help secure their advantage in local quarrels. Close quotes. So what had been a relatively halcyon time was disrupted by the conflicting claims for the control of Naples. This, on a local level, was between King Ferrante I of Naples and Ludovic Sforza of Milan, incidentally the man who commissioned Leonardo's The Last Supper. Yes. (laughs) And this brought in the larger factions of France and Spain when Ludovico suggested to King Charles VIII of France that he should invade Italy and oust King Ferrante like bringing in cane toads to get rid of pests. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, initially, Alexander tried to placate both sides, but eventually decided to side with the Aragonese Naples. King Ferranti had since died, and Alfonso II was waiting to be crowned by Alexander, since, as I said, Naples was a papal fief. So this split the papal college. Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere sided with the French, as we saw before. I love listening to you pronounce them. I'd be so bad at this. (laughs) I think I'm overdoing it, really. No, I like it. In fact, in 1494, della Rovere, I'm overdoing it now, fled to France. And he was miffed because he'd been pipped to the papacy by Alexander and all his bribes. And so he pursued his vendetta in France. You see how petty it is. I mean, he's... He's going over to France and saying, come on, invade Italy, because I didn't get to be Pope. Ah. So he was a great advocate of the French invasion, and probably more of that on his episode. To get a long story short, and one that we'll be covering in Charles VIII's episode, the French army swept down through Italy, partly helped by a new weapon called a cannon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and the condottieri had reduced war to a more stylized affair, a bit like those rigged wrestling matches that used to be on TV during the 70s. I don't know if you got those. Yes. I think we still have rigged wrestling matches. <laughs> it was described in John Julius Norwich's books, The Pope, as a stately pavan. But the French didn't go in for stately pavans. They fought to kill. Mm. And as they got closer to Rome, Alexander announced that he would not leave Rome, which sounds fine and resolute, but he locked himself away in the Castel Sant'Angelo and pretty much left the rest of Rome to its fate. And all the Pope's stuff was carried from the Vatican to Sant'Angelo, including his bed, so, you know, he wasn't going to rough it. <laughs> and Alexander and Cesare stood on the battlements and watched the approaching army and the panic in the city below them. And the Pope made terms with Charles and the French king was allowed into the city. In the end. Wow. Yeah. Charles VIII's entry into Italy started 70 years of destructive warfare. Mm. And the reason the French kings hadn't entered Italy earlier was not that they weren't interested. It was in what they saw as their entitlement, but because they were busy with other problems, namely Burgundy and England. And you start wondering, why doesn't the Pope just excommunicate him in the country and save Rome? Maybe he knew it, but it doesn't, doesn't always seem to work, no. does it? <laughs> <laughs> the French progressed down the peninsula pretty easily. Many cities capitulated, preferring the French to their own rulers. Rome fell, Naples fell, and Alfonso abdicated. So as you can probably gather, there was a lot more to it than that. The French claims to Naples made little strategic sense, although Charles claimed it was a base from which to attack the Turks. But it was mainly a case of, I have a right to the place, so I'm taking it. Charles VIII was forced to return to France 
since the city states that should capitulate were now turning against him, and so he was in quite a precarious position, surrounded by what was now enemy territory. So he left a garrison which was either there to protect his interest in Naples, or it was because half his army were in no fit state to make the journey back. And the culprit, syphilis. Oh, dear. Yeah, imagine a town full of syphilitic soldiers. I should imagine the Neapolitans couldn't wait to see them go. Okay, wait, so what year is this? Because if it's before 1492, then it coming back from the New World is kind of thrown out the window. No, it's after... Okay. Yeah. Eventually, it was decided to carve out Naples between Louis XII, Charles VIII being dead by this point, and Ferdinand of Aragon. This soon led to warfare between the two garrisons, in which Aragon came out on top. So we can see why the Holy League was considered necessary. Each part couldn't fight France on its own, but together they were stronger. At least that was the plan. The problem with the Holy League was that although ostensibly they had sided together to keep out the French, they all had their own agendas. Mm -hmm. So who joined and what was in it for them? Venice. They were the most threatened by the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. By September 1500, what Isabella of Castile had been warning about all along came to pass. Venetian colonies were falling one after another to the might of the Turkish navy. Alexander was able to use this to his advantage, or at least to Cesare's advantage, which, which everything was. He told the Venetians that if they wanted help from him for their campaign against the Turks, they must help Cesare campaign in the Papal States. And the government of Venice made Cesare a gentle uomo in the city and gave him a palace. Lucky Cesare. This seems so evil. We're not going <laughs> to help you unless you help us. Now, did they have to help Cesare first? Unless you help my boy. I think they probably did, or at least signed things to say they definitely would. Wow. Papal States. Alexander understood the threat from France, but he was also playing power games to get his children fiefdoms. He wanted to take over the Papal States himself, and he also had his eye on Milan. Naples. Well, they were under immediate threat from the French, so it's quite obvious why they joined. Spain. Isabella was trying to make everyone understand the threat from the Turks, and Ferdinand was chasing Aragon's claim for the Neapolitan throne. And he was also ruler of Sicily, which was just a hop, skip and a jump from Naples, so he had every reason to want to keep the French away from there too. Milan. Ludovico Sforza had realised that he had made a colossal mistake inviting the French into Italy. <laughs> yes. And he finally understood that, that once Charles had Naples, Milan was next on his shopping list. The Holy Roman Empire. Maximilian I wanted to take over Tuscany and other areas around the empire. And they went to know it at the time, but an important consequence of the Holy League was the political marriage arranged by Maximilian for his son, Philip the Handsome, to Joanna the Mad, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, mm -hmm. to reinforce the anti-French alliance. The son of Philip and Joanna would become Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor in 1519, succeeding Maximilian, and controlling an Habsburg empire which included Castile, Aragon, Austria, and the Burgundian Netherlands, thus encircling France. So they were very much playing the long game. Mm -hmm. Florence and Mantua. They both initially welcomed Charles VIII since they were unhappy with the rulers that they had, but they switched sides when they discovered that the French were even worse. And last but not least, England. Where does Henry VII fit into all this? It must surely be time for a bit of tudoring. 
please. <laughs> the seventh at last. It was Innocent VIII who oversaw the transition between Richard III and Henry, and the fact that he gave papal dispensation for the marriage between Henry and Elizabeth of York, they were cousins, shows an acceptance of Henry's reign. Henry was very devout, like his mother, who will remain nameless. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise I'll have to put in an ah afterwards. He was very quick to swear loyalty to the papacy. And Henry had good reason to want to keep his relationship with Spain secure as negotiations were in place for the marriage of Arthur and Catherine. And he also had strong trading links with Venice. And during the First Italian War of 1494, Henry officially sided with the Holy League, although he didn't join until 1496, when another raid of Italy by the French seemed imminent. So when you say joined, he... So he became part of the league, but didn't send any people. He until supplied then? no. He supp- well at all. Oh, <laughs> even once he joined, he supplied no soldiers or money, unless it was in the form of trade. Oh, so well then, did he join? He officially joined. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Yes, yes, I'm joining. I'm joining." But he didn't actually send them anything. <laughs> and at the same time that he was ostensibly in this anti-French league, he was making trade deals with France. But at least he agreed to join, because James the Fourth of Scotland just said that the French and Turks weren't attacking him, so forget it. So at least, at least he showed willing, even if he didn't actually do anything <laughs> nothing, to help Nothing, him. nothing at <laughs> nothing. all. <laughs> so neither side of the Italian War particularly wanted Henry. Oh. I mean, why, why would you? Although the Holy League did ask him to keep the French busy on France's northern borders so they wouldn't have troops to invade Italy. But Henry said he'd tried that before, it didn't work, and he didn't want to do it again. So he wasn't, he didn't even do that. (laughs) So also, of course, he would have been reluctant to put into jeopardy those trade deals with France. Right. He wasn't, he he wasn't an idiot. No. And as I say, neither side had particular use for Henry, but they were both very keen that he shouldn't join the other side. And they lobbied hard to that end, especially Isabella, who offered the sweetener of a Spanish princess to clinch the deal. Oh, is that how that started? Partly. Henry played it pretty well, as he often did. Trade deals with France improved his relationship with Charles VIII and then Louis XII, and his constant insistence that he was loyal to the Pope meant that he didn't fall out with the papacy. And after this, following a series of deaths amongst his advisors and families, as we've seen, and with Henry's declining health with TB, he didn't participate or even pretend to in later Italian wars. So that's, that's our tutoring done. Really, that's it. That's all I could find. Okay. <laughs> that's fair to anyway. be honest. We didn't. We weren't even 100% sure we would be able to find much, but we just <laughs> felt it was an important person we needed to discuss. So Yeah. Yeah, and an interesting one. We've talked about his children. Even when we do a Patreon feed, 
we've thought about doing biographies of interesting people around the globe who had nothing whatsoever to do with England, mm -hmm. and I am sure that Cesare will get an episode. And Lucretia may get an episode. I'd want to do but Lucretia. I, I would, I would <laughs> want her in that draw. Yeah. But I can't do a Borgia without mention of these people. So following the death of his brother Juan, Cesare resigned his cardinalship, which he wasn't really suited for, and concentrated on warfare. But warfare is expensive, and he often had to go to Daddy to get him to finance it, and Daddy would say no, and Cesare would do that Shrek cat face, <laughs> and Daddy would say, oh, I can't say no to you, and then he would find the money by selling offices or changing people's will, so it turned out that they'd actually left all their money to the papacy. Wow. And it was rumoured having people killed so he could ransack their property. Wow. Mm. Yeah, no. None of that fits in my idea of a pope. No? No. Nope. Oh. Well, I'm going to stand firm on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're very picky, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, his inability to say no to Cesare was well known. The Venetian ambassador reported back, Today the pope has had some difficulties with the duke. That's Cesare, who required another 20,000 ducats for his campaign, for which His Holiness had already paid out a great deal. Although the Pope is reluctant to give him the money, he'll come round in the end, as he does with everything concerning his son. And the same ambassador was told of a Venetian cardinal who died after days of vomiting and diarrhoea, and vomiting diarrhoea was often put down to poisoning, because, you know, there's no way of knowing. No. And he said, this ambassador said, as soon as the Pope heard of his death, he sent a man to the house, and before dawn, it was completely plundered. And this added another 150,000 ducats to Cesare's war chest. Oh, my goodness. Mm. So it's quite frustrating not to be able to talk at length about Cesare, since he was a fascinating and truly awful man. <laughs> and he was, he was riddled with syphilis. And then they all were. Alexander, Julius, all of them. And their sexual behaviour honestly beggars belief. Wow. <laughs> Given that they knew that they were carrying a sexually contagious disease. Cesare became very <laughs> pro-French and in fact married a French woman. Lucky girl. A Charlotte d'Ombre, sister of the King of Navarre. I can just pray that he was kind to her. I don't think so, but... when He was made Duke of Valence. And I could tell you so much about that wedding night... But this isn't Cesare's episode, so maybe if it does get his own episode, we could learn about the eight times a night, the oh. laxatives, and the silver commode. What? But sadly, that's not for now. <laughs> what? <laughs> but meanwhile, Alexander's siding with the Spanish. However, Cesare gives him the Shrek cat eyes again, and Alexander <laughs> gives way and becomes pro-French. This seems purely in order to give advancement to his son. That when the French invade Italy again and attack Milan, Cesare is part of the French conquest. What? Yeah, I know. Now, was che was Alexander using Cesare to strengthen control of the Papal States, or was he using the French to get a duchy for Cesare? I mean, wow, yeah, that is mm. so wrong. Yeah, it's gone topsy-turvy. It started out as a bid to protect Naples, and now Cesare is in the French army attacking the place. Oh my goodness. But in his army was a certain Torrigiano, famous for two things. Punching Michelangelo in the nose <laughs> and making that wonderful tomb of Henry VII and Elizabeth yes. of York that you can see to this day in Westminster Abbey. Yes, so talented. Nice. Unbelievably talented. <laughs> but a little um, hot-headed, I think. 
So we're not going to follow Cesare's exploits. It's not his episode at one point, but at one point it does become clear he's no longer working for the papacy. He's gone his own way. So his father's given him all this money and he's just doing whatever the heck he wants. Pretty much. Oh my. Pretty much. Yeah. And the and father's getting this money through some questionable means, shall we say. Doing this makes me want to do like a historical slap. Just back through time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the alliance with France caused problems for Alexander's daughter, Lucretia, since she's now, she's married to Alfonso of Aragon. See, this is the trouble with political marriages at a time when people change their allegiances more often than their socks. Yes, and yeah. poor Lucretia, she's about to be passed around. Anyway, it's not a problem for long, as Alfonso suddenly found himself stabbed. Yes. Not to death initially, he was recovering when one of Cesare's men, Corella, came into his bedroom, told Lucretia the Pope wanted to see her, and then, while she was away, apparently, Alfonso tripped, which is odd, trip when you're lying in bed, mm-hmm. and fell, and his wounds reopened, and, you know, it all happened so fast, there was nothing they could do. I'm trying to remember that book. It's been years since I read it, but I believe this is the one husband that she actually loved. Hmm. Birchard said he was strangled in his bed. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that. And Lucretia does seem to have been generally upset by the death of her husband. And yet, although it seems pretty clear that Cesare was behind it, they remained strangely close. Yeah, there's been rumours about that mm. too. Yes. I mean, I doubt it was that close, as the rumours suggested. But it does seem odd to stay friends with your brother when the brother almost certainly killed your husband. Yeah. And Lucretia has quite a reputation, but I didn't find much to justify that. Christopher Hibbert is pretty sympathetic towards her in his book, but even even on the cover of that book, there's a picture of a woman in a scarlet dress clutching a dagger. I felt that she was very much a pawn in her father's and brother's political games. Mm-hmm. She was married off three times to people who could be of use to the family, and when they stopped being of use to the family, they somehow got accused of impotence or just stopped breathing and started bleeding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, as I said, Alexander was very close to his daughter in that funny renaissance type sort of I was going to say, is that close to... You just killed somebody she loved, although we don't know if... The stuff that I did read, they couldn't tell you if it was actually Cesare or the Pope that demanded it. Yes. Well, that's it. Whether it was Julius um, making it sound more like the Pope, and in fact it was Cesare. It's so hard to tell when you've got somebody coming up afterwards Mm -hmm. who's desperate to to dish the dirt on on your previous one. Yeah, he gave gave her political roles, which would not be normal for a woman, including in the Vatican, where women weren't meant to be at all. And rather touchingly, when she set off to Ferrara for her third marriage, Alexander ran from window to window of the palace just to catch her last glimpse of her. But it didn't stop him marrying her off to Alfonso d'Este, though, a man who, as Christopher Hibbert said, prowled the streets at night, a drawn sword in one hand, his erect penis in the other. Oh! So quite a catch, as you can imagine. Oh my god. Mm. What is wrong with people? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I think, yeah, history just brings out the worst well we only hear about the worst people don't we yeah you don't hear about all those quiet lovely people that are just nice all the time yeah alexander's death why did borgia's power collapse on alexander's death 
And why couldn't Cesare keep it going? I mean, he was incredibly powerful at this point. But he was also a lunatic. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, the problem was that the Borgia had put all their eggs into one basket. Everything they had came from the papacy. The Medici uh-huh. had their banking, but for the Borgias, once there was no longer a Borgia in the Vatican, and in fact there was Alexander's greatest enemy, Judas II, their power, power fell apart even for the mighty Cesare. Mm-hmm. And we come back now to Castellese's dinner party. In fact, it was the following day that Castellese himself fell ill, as did several of his guests, including, including Alexander and Cesare, and some of the servants. And most people suspected poison. But Alexander blamed the putrid air of hot July. This month is fatal to, for stout men, he said. I quite like him, actually. He's, he comes up with some nice, some nice little phrases. I don't well, say like him. <laughs> Some said that Alec- Alexander and Cesare had planned to poison Castellese for his money, but Castellese played them at their own game. The Pope was bled, but strangely this didn't seem to do the trick. <laughs> Cesare was also bled and then plunged into ice-cold bath, and when he emerged, all the skin was peeling off his back. Ew! And this might have been a result of the syphilis rather than the fever, or indeed both. Well, on Friday, August the 18th, despite the bleeding and after receiving extreme unction, Alexander died. And those around his deathbed could apparently confirm having seen seven devils around him at the moment of his death. Similarly, Alexander reportedly also began to boil and his mouth began to foam like a cauldron on fire. And they could confirm this because oh. they were there. Oh, I don't know. Now I'm starting to wonder. There's a music artist called Florence and the Machine, and she's got a song called Seven Devils. Ah. I wonder if they're related. Cesare was too ill to attend to things after his father's death, but that was okay, because his trusty sidekick, Corella, the one who was with Lucretia's second husband when he so unfortunately fell and reopened his stab wounds, Corella was soon on the scene to deal with the necessary arrangements. Because, you know, it's a busy time. Mm-hmm. You have to make preparations after a death. You know, there's people to contact, sandwiches to make. You know, it's <laughs> busy. But he didn't make sandwiches. He marched into the Pope's chamber, where he found the wonderfully named Cardinal Casanova. Seriously? A Cardinal Casanova? <laughs> and holding a knife to the Cardinal's neck, he threatened to slice his throat open and throw him out of the window, unless he gave him the keys to the cupboards and chests. And the cardinal very sensibly gave him the keys, whereupon Corella and the men, his men ransacked the place. And I'm not sure, but I assume that Alexander's body was still there. Yeah. yeah. Lovely people. Corella then made a public announcement that the Pope was dead, and all the servants immediately ran to the bedchamber to see what they could nick. Only <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much left. <laughs> it reminded me of, you know, a Christmas carol, the ghost of the Christmas yet to come. Yeah. When when Scrooge sees all the people selling his bedding. But then trusty Birchett took over and he dressed the Pope's body. But he couldn't find the papal shoes, so he put a pair of slippers on him and had to tie them on with string, which would have been torture for poor Birchett because yeah. he, <laughs> he was a stickler for protocol. Yeah. The following day, there was a procession from the Sistine Chapel to St. Peter's. And the beer was carried by a number of paupers, who, according to Birchard, showed a lot more reverence than the clerics displayed. The clergy ambled alongside the coffin in what Birchard described as a very disorderly fashion. Oh, so I can imagine him running up and down, telling them to keep in line, stop chatting. 
Once they reached St. Peter's, the palace guard attacked the funeral procession and stole the candles. Oh my lord. This is a farce. This is a farce. (laughs) It really is, and it gets farcier. (laughs) The clergy ran off in panic and left the Pope. And good old Birchard managed to get the Pope into the Basilica, sort of manhandled him into the Basilica with uh, with him, with some porters, and they hid his body behind an iron grill while they tried to work out what to do next. Oh my gosh. This is a Monty Python skit. Birchard was appalled at the dead Pope's face, which had changed to the colour of the blackest cloth and was covered in blue-black spots. His nose was swollen, his, the mouth distended, the tongue belt bent back double, the lips seemed to fill everything, and the... F- the appearance of his face was more horrifying than anything ever seen, close quotes. And no one would touch the body. I, I wouldn't either. In the end, one of the porters tied some rope around the feet <laughs> and Alexander was dragged to the grave. <laughs> <laughs> and they managed to roll the body into the coffin, which was now too small. So they had to pummel him in with their fists. Oh <laughs> Did he explode like William the <laughs> First? And Birchard complained that no wax tapers or candles were used and no priest or any other person attended the body. So wait, this he's okay is, with the pummeling? This pummeling. is the Pope. <laughs> this is the Pope. <laughs> and he's shoved into a hole in the ground and there's no priests there at all. <laughs> the highest the highest authority we've got is Birchard and he's the master of ceremonies. <laughs> Shall we rate him? <laughs> yes. I think he gets we... a comical plus one. <laughs> I mean, it, unbelievable. That. <laughs> and fibbly. Intrigue. Where do we start? Oh, my gosh. Alex- <laughs> Alexander and his type. Well, what, were these, with, what this round's for? He's an amphibolizer par excellence, I think. <laughs> In 1472, he met an attractive, intelligent woman, 10 years his junior, and she was Vanozza de Catanei, and she was to become his mistress and mother of four children, possibly five, including Cesare and Lucretia. To facilitate this relationship, Vanozza was married off to an elderly lawyer, who, presumably for a substantial consideration, was happy to turn a blind eye and leave them to it. After this man's death, she was married twice more, each time to people that Alexander selected for her. This relationship, this is between Venozza and Alexander, lasted for some time and is always described as loving. However, when Cesare was ten, all the children were taken away from Venozza and placed in the care of Alexander's cover since, and get this, Venozza's background made her unsuitable for bringing up their family. What? Which I read to mean, you can't look after my children, woman, you've been sleeping with a priest. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of moral example does that set them? But I thought setting up all those bogus marriages must give them a pretty high amphiboly score. Mm-hmm. When he was Pope, and he badly wanted to be Pope, he bribed his fellow cardinals on a scale wholly unseen before. Even one who was atten- intending to go for the post himself was given four mule loads of gold. And I don't know if we can work out how much a mule load is in modern money, but I think the answer is probably an a awful lot. lot. So... That would take a lot of intriguing, whispering in dark corners and sneaky backhanders and that. And that's when we, when we were thinking about the round. That's the sort of, sort of exactly behaviour we, <laughs> we were thinking of. 
So if we can believe the scandal, and as I said, it's not entirely certain that we can, he also arranged to have several people disposed of in order to get their possessions to fund Cesare's jollies around Italy. So I don't know how much you're thinking of rating him. (laughs) Fifty? Ten. There's got to be a ten. There is nothing else you can go with. I thought ten. Okay. Yes. Wow. So Amphiboli. Twenty. Ten. Twenty. Anti-peristasis. Rise and fall. He was the nephew of Pope. Pope's, he was the nephew of Pope Calixtus. Why did he take the name Calixtus? It's so difficult to say. The third, and so benefited from nepotism in the true sense of the word. He was made cardinal at the age of twenty-five. He completed a law degree in Bologna in just a year and became top of his class. So, academic genius, or did he have very large pockets even then? Pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Vice-Chancellor at the age of 27. Borges claimed descent from the Royal House of Aragon. But as far as anti-parastasis is concerned, being nephew to the Pope, you're almost guaranteed high office in the po- in the church. Yeah. And add to this his own largesse in bribing his way to the top. I don't think I could give him much. I mean, he became Pope, and not many people become Pope, but you're more likely to become Pope when you come got f- a- When you're related yes. to one. So, yeah, I, I'd have to go with a four. I mean, it was, that's what I put. Okay, yeah, it, it's just sort of expected. Martyrdom. Zero. <laughs> Very little nothing. here. <laughs> you could say he sac- sacrificed himself for the good of his children, but almost certainly he would have been a better pope if he hadn't. Was it for the good of his children? I mean, it didn't help them at all. Essentially, at the end. He intended it to be for the good of his children, but yeah. But no. <laughs> he, he, he just, they're just a, a brood of spoiled brats. Yeah. Yeah, zero then. Okay. <laughs> Beating. Posterity. And if you were to grab someone in the street and say Pope Alexander the Sixth, people would look at you blankly. You know, especially if you said it out of the blue without any preamble. <laughs> But if you say the name Borgia, yes, and immediately a whole morass of corruption, debauchery, self-servingness comes to mind. Yeah, they're still making movies and TV shows about him. Yeah, I was going to say he was played by Jeremy Irons in the series The Borgia. It's not someone that would leap straight to my mind if I were casting. No. Alexander. I haven't seen it, so I don't know how good he was. At least two of his children were very famous. More yeah. famous than he is, though. He left a trail of destruction. Good. <laughs> um, well, as far as the wars are concerned, I'd say Ludovico of Milan probably, and and Julius were probably more to blame than okay. he was for that. But yeah, I mean the fact that he changed sides probably didn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think I'm going to have to go with a ten. Yeah, I don't know many people who haven't heard of the Borgias. Yeah, but which Borgias? I mean, they've heard of Cesare and Lucretia. Have they heard of Alexander? That's why I knocked mm. him down a bit because I went knocked him down to a seven because I thought yes Borgia, right. But when I've when I've told people I'm doing Alexander the Sixth, they don't know. He, yeah, He's the Borgia right. Pope. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, you're right. So. Mm, I think I'll give him an eight because he still did create those two kids. Yeah. Okay, I'll go with a seven. Already decided to. <laughs> Fifteen. Flaunt a bleeding flaunt. Look at Exhibit A. Looking at Exhibit A. Quite the nose. 
Yes. Now, I wondered about that nose. Yeah, we see him in relatively low-key clothes here. Mm-hmm. Well, I bet they cost a bit. He has a bit of fur poking out. Yes. Did he have a nose? He was accused of being a baptised Jew, so maybe that's all that's oh. raising its ugly head again. He's quite heavy. He's got his extra large robes on. No, you know why it's extra large. <laughs> but he wasn't he wasn't a lazy glutton, you know, you get hear these people having massive feasts. Apparently he wasn't at all. He threw banquets but rarely ate more than one course himself and he walked everywhere. I'm not sure if that was when he was Pope, they probably told him you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but before that he used to walk everywhere. Uh the next picture is he's tickling the foot of baby Jesus. Yeah. Who sits sits on his mother's lap. Now it's thought I put this picture in because it's thought that the model for the Madonna was Alexandra's mistress Julia Farnese. Oh yeah. Which caused a little bit of a scandal. I mean you can't make the Madonna a mistress. <laughs> it just shows how shameless they are, doesn't it? We should say in the second photo how he's dripping in jewels. Hmm. Like that's yeah. a lot of jewelry on that. What it I don't know what the papal vestments are actually called. Hmm. No, I don't know. But that is a lot of jewellery. I would recommend looking at images of the Borgia apartments or even going there because they're very beautiful and they're, f- they're full of symbolism as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, they're very interesting. However, I would direct you to Exhibit B okay, on the next that. page. Oh, Definitely a different take on him. So the first picture still has him in jewels, but also the weirdest crown I've ever seen. That's true, actually. I didn't really look at the crown. That's like a three, four-tier crown. It looks heavy, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Especially since it's probably covered in jewels. Yeah. And then there's another picture. The picture opens out. The picture of him, uh, the first picture, is on the top, and that shows him as Pope. With quite well, sort the, of as Pope. Yeah, because he's got quite a beard, and in the other photos he didn't have Pope. But the one, the yeah. other two are quite disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because when you open out the pamphlet, underneath he's depicted as a devil, or the devil. And as a devil, he's got the same elaborate cloak that he's wearing when he's Pope. The devil picture has the caption, Ego Sum Papa, mm-hmm. which was, I'm the Pope, in case people <laughs> hadn't worked that out, or <laughs> throw back to his announcement. What is on his chest? Is that supposed to be the devil coming out of his own body? That is a sign of greed. The face on his stomach is um, greed. And instead of carrying a cross, he's got kind of a clawed horned... With a lasso. (laughs) Yes. Instead of that sort of holy cloth that he's got hanging from it, it's a noose of some sort, isn't it? And where the Pope has his hand up in a sort of benediction, this other character has claws yes in a sort of unholy mimicking of the benediction yeah same hat but the the crown now has flames instead of the crown flower sort of thing you see yeah and the little horns coming out the side yeah yeah it's odd actually because the picture of him as pope the papal cross should really have three horizontals representing the father son and holy ghost oh i didn't know that or the realms of the Pope's authority, the church, the heaven and the world. The two-pronged cross signifies an archbishop. So I don't know if the artist got it wrong, or it it might be making a point that I've missed, I'm not sure. The picture was by an anonymous German artist, although it was very popular in France, especially when France invaded Italy. Mm -hmm. And there was no love lost between the two countries. 
But even the picture of Alexander as Pope, his face has that caricature Jewish look that persisted right through to 1930s Germany, doesn't it? it has, yeah. Which is a bit disturbing. But the trouble with looking at visual images of someone is that you, you can only decipher the symbols up to a point, and we don't know what we're missing. So there could be all sorts of things in there we're just not picking up on. Mm-hmm. And the picture at the bottom, that's not the Pope. I was but... going to say. <laughs> Would you want to describe what it is? Um, okay, it looks kind of like a mule who is standing up for one thing. It's got a face mm-hmm. on its bum. It has breasts and a woman's belly, and it looks like women, female genitalia. It's... Yeah, I was quite surprised about that, that this female bit. Yeah, it's covered in scales over the arms, the top of the chest, and the legs, and the feet. One is cloven, the other one is bird-like. Oh, yes, I hadn't spotted that, actually, yeah. The tail looks like a dragon's head at the end of the tail. That's right. It's the head of an ass, the tail of a dragon, and covered in scales. Uh, we got no po- poodle this time. <laughs> no, it looks like it might be trying to hold something. There's a castle behind it. Yeah. I can't make out what's on the flag. In 1496, four years into Alexander Stinter's Pope, the type are flooded and a strange creature was washed up. And as we say, it had the head of an ass, a tail of a dragon, and it was covered in snails. Snails? Snails? snails. <laughs> Probably snails as well if it had been washed up in the, in the <laughs> river. <laughs> People said it was the perfect symbol for the state of the papacy. And Lucas Cranach, the elder, did a woodcut of it, which was, it was called the Papal Ass. And as you say, it was depicted as female, but I didn't, yeah, I don't quite understand why. But I only added that because I thought it was an interesting little side note. I mean, the, the pictures we should be going with are the ones in the Borgia apartment. So the first ones? And, yeah, and this um, interesting one where he's depicted as the devil. Yeah. Well, it's better than we've gotten before. I think you can't do any better than this, can you? I mean, he's got Everything. quite famous... Yeah, he's got... Pin, what was his name? Pintarocchio, I think his name was, who painted the Borgia apartment. I mean, he was a famous Renaissance painter. And you've got, got him also portrayed as a devil. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. I went put down ten. I'm thinking ten as well. That's that's awesome. I mean, we've never had anything near this before. But we've... No. So he's done well in, in some interesting places here, hasn't he? Yes. Uh, right, tot it up. Eight, nine, six. Really? That many? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Yep. Two, three, four. No, not that many. <laughs> Fifty-three. Yep. That's not bad for a complete nut job. Yeah. Hmm. Now, the ultimate mm. question, though, and I... What, what uh, do we... Th- what do you think? Are they too delicious, or what? I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, I, I just realised I hadn't actually made the decision myself. Quite often, when, you know, when you, do, when you do write these things yourself, at the end, you think, oh, obviously or obviously not, but I hadn't even thought of it. I mean, he's... When it comes, we haven't decided what's happening to the people at the end. Well, they're going to be... Uh, well, he's going to hell. ...fight against <laughs> each other. <laughs> I expect he's already there, but yes. <laughs> For interesting person, he's an interesting person. Yes, but this is specifically to do with England 
and it yes. doesn't seem like he has much effect. No. At all. He has, well, apart from the fact that he was set up the Holy League, which Henry rather reluctantly joined and didn't do anything once he'd joined, mm-hmm. he has no connection with England at all, apart from, yeah, the, the dispensation. But, you know, he was sending out papal dispensations all over the place, I should imagine. I just can't do it. No. If we were just doing interesting people around the globe... Then yes. He would be a definite. Yes. But his lack of connection with England, yeah, it does make it tricky, doesn't it? Yeah. So you're going with a no? I'm going with a no, I think. Yeah, I think I'm going with a no. That's that's very definite. We both said, I think I'm going with a no. Yeah, which is just it, though. I mean... Sorry, Alexander. It's a no. it's It's a reluctant no. Yeah. So you've got the benefit of a reluctant no. But he's been quite, he's been fun to read about. Yes. I've, yeah, I've enjoyed him. It will be very interesting to see when Pontifax gets to him. If he mm. gets Pope or no. No, wait, that's yeah. their Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> they, they haven't got the proviso that he has to be anything to do with England. Yes. Which did, which was quite a tie, really, for finding things about him. Yeah. Which is why I ended up mostly just finding things I found interesting and plonking them in. Don't <laughs> worry. I found it interesting, so I'm sure other people will. I did. And, and disturbing. <laughs> yes, but not strangely. I didn't find him as disturbing as I found Dudley. Oh, yeah. Even though he was allegedly actually poisoning people. Yes. Whereas Dudley wasn't. But I found his methods more disturbing. Yeah. I felt listening to Dudley that it was always dark, cloudy weather. Yeah. You know, I was Borgia, sunny. Could it be because Borgia was doing it to high ranking people, whereas Dudley was doing it to everyone, which could have included us if we were there? And yes, you didn't feel that Alexander was tying people up. No. You know, you'd you'd go to dinner with him, and a few hours later, you'd. Feel, feel a little ill, and then uh, <laughs> and then go to sleep. <laughs> yes, well, it's quite gentle in comparison. Yes, <laughs> but no, sorry, Alexander. But at least it was a reluctant no, rather than a definitely no, 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 yeah. no, like we gave Dudley. <laughs> yes, I agree. So you want to see who you've got next? I will pull out the box. Oh, that's going to be loud. <laughs> Let's see who we got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I mm-hmm. wanted this one. <laughs> Perkin Warbeck. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, Margaret of Burgundy, because I know you wanted her. Oh, yes, I still do want her, but yes. <laughs> I don't know why I'm writing it down, so if I'm going to forget. Perkin Warbeck, yeah, he's going to be quite interesting. i got a great fat book that I'm right on the end of the bed, so I wake up every morning to the word Perkin on the side <laughs> of this book. Perfect. So I shall start reading it. Oh, that's going to draw in a lot of different countries into yes. our Tudor England. Including Margaret of Burgundy herself. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy. Oh, that's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to that one. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Good. I thought I was hoping you weren't going to just drag out someone and I think, what? Who? Who? <laughs> but I've definitely heard of Perkin Wilbur. Yes. <laughs> that is the end of our episode on Pope Alexander VI. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Richard Empson. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on... In the meantime, God's benisons go with you, and with those that would make good of bad and friends of foes. Good gentle youth, tempt not a desperate man. Goodbye. Goodbye.